Hey everyone, welcome to Hit the Apex Podcast. I'm Jawad as always. Thank you for joining me today on Thursday, 17th of October. A little later than normal in the evening. Um, had a pretty busy day today. Um, and just chasing up some stuff in regards to the Facebook page and everything. Um, something to do with administration, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, just got to get onto Facebook and see if... Um, the problem can be fixed um, but in the meantime you guys can follow um, us um, if you don't already on Twitter so that's at um, the handle is at hit the apex media um, and you know I've been using the Twitter account more this year anyway than the Facebook page um, especially on the podcast side of things as well you know I'm sure you know should probably do it a bit more, the social media stuff, but, you know, um, at the moment, it's probably, yeah, you know, just trying to focus on, focus on doing the podcast, and then, yeah, um, social media, I'm going to do it a bit afterwards, but, yeah, just get onto Twitter, I guess, and um, I'll keep everyone posted with what's happening with Facebook, if I end up having to make a new page, you know, I'll just, yeah, make a new page and everything, so... We'll get um, started anyway with the podcast this week. Quite a bit to talk about too. Um, uh, Japanese Grand Prix over the weekend. Not the most classic race, I guess. It was um, pretty pretty uneventful as the Japanese Grand Prix has been for the last few years. And um, what really took the, the cake though, I guess, was the Bathurst 1000, which probably going to spend more time on this podcast talking about that and also the fallout from the race, um, what we've all been talking about this week, um, what everyone's been talking about, you know, in regards to Shelby Power Racing, Fabian Coulthard and, um, you know, the C word being tossed around, um, being um, cheating. So, yeah, I'll give my two cents worth, I guess, on that a bit later. But to the Japanese Grand Prix, so I said it last week as well that... Um, we had the threat of the typhoon um, lingering over the weekend and I guess credit to F1 for stepping in early and making the announcement that Saturday um, running would be cancelled altogether so they weren't even going to bother turning up to the track on Saturday which was the day that the typhoon hit Japan um, at its uh, at its peak, so you know, no, it was great that no one was there. Um, Safety wise, it was the best thing to do. Um, what that meant was that um, qualifying had to be run on Sunday ahead of the race, which I think this is the third time that they've done that for the Japanese Grand Prix. I remember 2013 at the Australian Grand Prix that happened too. Um, given that Saturday weather was so bad, but we still had to wait for them to declare the session and then we came back Sunday to watch um, qualifying in the morning ahead of the race so yeah you know we had um, Friday practice two sessions as normal then Sunday qualifying we had Ferrari on the front row Sebastian Vettel on pole position so Ferrari's run of poles extend to five races um, and Seb on pole for the first time as well in this second half of the season Come the uh, race, though, both the Ferraris got a pretty bad start from the front row of the grid. Seb was actually investigated for a false start. You know, he kind of, like, got into his grid slot and then sort of 
just jump forward or jump backwards and it caught the eye of the stewards but um, there was no penalty to come of it later Charles Leclerc though on the other hand um, who ended up finishing seventh in the race uh, with some penalties applied for this incident he crashed into Max Verstappen at turn one so talk about a bit of a fizzer as far as having those two guys um, in contention you know Max Verstappen of course Red Bull Honda Honda's home race first time with Red Bull as well so they would have been expecting big things for those guys and uh, Max to be taken out of the race on the first lap as well couldn't really showcase the the potential of that Honda um, uh, upgrades that they had last time out in Russia but for Leclerc I guess it was yeah didn't really get any better from that he had some damage too and I'm just surprised that you know they didn't cop a penalty earlier or they were given like a black and orange flag whatever it is in F1 for you know uh, a mechanical infringement or something where you know he literally had pieces of his car falling off and you know he, possibly hit another drivers I mean Lewis Hamilton was behind him at that time and when the I think Leclerc's mirror came off um, one of his side view mirrors came off and actually hit Hamilton's side pod so you know I'm surprised that Leclerc himself didn't feel that there was anything wrong with the car his team kept saying pit pit you got a pit Leclerc's like no no everything's fine and then it's not until his team say, well, you know, the FIA have told us you got a pit, so we got a pit for repairs, and then he comes in, so, you know, that sort of thing. If, you know, the stewards, they should have just done a black and orange flag or whatever it is to, to signal to the car to come in straight away and could have saved us from, you know, um, Hamilton's little tirade as well, and then I think Lando Norris as well, who didn't have a great race either, coming together with Alex Albon, um, he, I think, also picked up some of that debris as well, so difficult day for Norris and the McLaren, but going back to the front, I guess, yeah, Leclerc, so those penalties were applied post-race to him, he got two 15-second penalties, one for the collision with Max, and then the other one, of course, um, driving with that damaged car and dropping bits of um, carbon fibre all over the track and on other drivers as well, so that was... Um, that that was Ferrari's race well not Ferrari's race but Leclerc's race as far as Vettel was concerned he ended up finishing second he and Bottas on two-stop strategies initially um, Bottas had the great start actually I should go back and say and he took the lead from the first lap going into the first corner and since then didn't really look back Lewis Hamilton though bit cranky you could say he was put on a single stop strategy initially put on the medium tyre and then Mercedes changed their mind a bit later on and are like well you can go on the two-stop strategy as well which irked Hamilton because it was like well guys you've taken me out of the race now was his reaction so but you know I guess he can't win everything all the time um, and you know while he didn't well it was mathematically possible that he would seal the title in Japan it wasn't realistically possible it's going to be done anyway in the next couple of races you'd think and I'll talk a bit about that later but Bottas you know winning his third race of the season um, winning from third as well which has never been done before in Suzuka so he sort of broke that record but more importantly though for Mercedes it was the uh, result that was enough to seal them their sixth constructors championship in six years which only Ferrari in the history of F1 have done since you know 99 to 2004 um, they had that run and Mercedes similarly have um, 
gone on that run, six Constructors' Championships in six years. They've totally dominated the hybrid era. So congratulations to Mercedes for that um, result. You know, they just looked peerless all season up until, I guess, now. But it's kind of over now anyway with um, them streaking away. So they can't be beat as far as the Constructors' Championship is concerned. Seb, though, Vettel came in second, finished, um, I guess, you know, good enough for him um, to to finish up there. The win would have been nice, but, you know, um, again, just outraced by Mercedes. Mercedes, again, you know, on the soft, uh, sorry, on the race tyres are a lot better than Mercedes. Sorry, getting my words mixed up here. See, this is why I don't do late late recordings, you know, because it's the end of the day and, you know, you're all buggered, and, um, well, it's just been a very taxing week, <laughs> actually, to be honest. No excuse, though, so, but, yeah, it's been a bit, of, bit of a taxing week, I'll say. Um, but, yeah, so, for Mercedes, you know, they've been strong constantly on the race tyres, you know, the long stints and everything. Ferrari seemed to chew their tyres up a lot more quicker than Mercedes do, but it was, I guess... Um, the straight line speed of the Ferrari that kept um, Lewis behind Seb at the end of the race um, because Lewis had ended up catching up the Ferrari and looked to pass but yeah you know the Seb was just quicker on the straights and was able to get the job done so that's one your one two three Bottas good to see him win but you know you got to say you got to say that the championship is out of his reach now Lewis I guess Mathematically, Mexico, which is the next race, seems like the likely place where he'll seal the title, which will be three years in a row that he's ended up um, winning the championship in Mexico. And I thought it was really touching, too, that um, with the sealing of the sixth Constructors' Championship, that Mercedes dedicated um, the win to Nicky Lauda, who, of course, we lost earlier this year. Um, and who was an integral part of that team, who was seen, you know, always as that that senior figure within the team, um, that calming influence and everything. So, you know, Nicky Lauda, you got to say, you know, even though his stint as a team owner um, back when he was, or as a team principal back when he was with Jaguar was less than, you know, desirable, what he's done with Mercedes has been nothing short of phenomenal, and I guess having those right people in place, like your Toto Wolfs, um, then, you know, bringing James Allison into the team beforehand, Paddy Lowe, um, it's, I guess, nothing short of phenomenal what they've achieved, and I really, you know, admire them for, you know, giving this dedication too louder, you know, they've done the tributes on the car, you know, they've had that red, um, Silver Arrow logo, they've had his signature on the car all year too, so just goes to show you that, yeah, this this team isn't really about, like, individual entities and everything, as much as Lewis Hamilton is that, you know, figure within, the, within Formula One and also within Mercedes, it truly is a collaborative team effort, and, you know, they thank every single person involved with Mercedes Motorsport um, F1, and everything, whether they work at the factory or they're at the track, you know, all their effort counts, I guess. And, you know, that's why you got to say, I guess, in retrospect as well, that um, Mercedes may be one of the greatest teams that we've seen in F1, you know. And I think, as with anything in modern sports or just modern times in general, is that the appreciation for 
achievement doesn't seem to be as much as it was in the past, you know, like, you know, I don't think we're going to really realise the, you know, how great this achievement is for Mercedes or for Lewis Hamilton or there's not going to be much appreciation for it, I think, until maybe a decade on or, you know, when Lewis Hamilton decides to retire or if Mercedes decide to pull out of the sport altogether. Um, until until we get to that stage, I don't think people are going to look back and say, oh, you know, Mercedes, they were, you know, better than McLaren were in the 80s, um, they're better than the Ferrari dynasty with Michael Schumacher as well, like, I get the feeling that, yeah, in 10 years' time, that's what we're going to be talking about, um, and, you know, it's it's kind of weird because I had this thought today where we are, 2019 is the end of the decade as well, so, you know, Mercedes have dominated the better part of this decade of Formula One, you know, since 2014, so, you know, Red Bull were there from 2010, um, uh, you know, the start of it, and then, yeah, Mercedes six years in a row, it's just, it's, yeah, and if they end up winning next year, then they'll um, beat Ferrari's record of six constructors' championships in a row, so, yeah, um, don't know what's going to happen next year, don't really want to speculate or think about it too much, there's no time like the present, <laughs> But we had a, you know, another race where we had the whole race. So I haven't talked about it yet. But, you know, there's always been another race um, for P4, position four and the minor points placings, you know, fourth place in the Constructors' Championship and everything. And it was Alexander Albon who got his career best finish of fourth in this on this occasion, having only really had competition from Carlos Sainz, um, who made a pretty good start um, and was fighting Lewis Hamilton actually earlier on the, in the race so great race for Sainz to finish fifth again you know those points are pretty crucial in their battle with Renault but you know Renault themselves had a pretty good race too because um, qualifying was pretty terrible and then Renault in the race you know we had Dan and Nico Hulkenberg really just go for it on the start Hulk, I think, said on the team radio too, to as a mechanic, oh, did you see that start? Did you see that start? And, you know, getting a bit excited about it. Hulkenberg, though, finished 10th in the end. And that, you know, was basically due to some voodoo penalty applications as well that changed a few numbers around and everything. Ricardo, though, um, I've got to say, one-stop strategy. He made it work to finish 6th. Um, promoted, of course, by Leclerc's penalty up into P6, so great result in that respect, but they still don't look very convincing, you know, you look at McLaren, and you look at, you know, their qualifying performance versus their race performance, and they're both on the ball, and they both look very convenient, whereas, um, convincing, I should say, whereas Renault, you know, they either bomb in qualifying, and then do maybe good in the race, or the other way around, or they just completely bomb altogether, so, you know, for a manufacturer team, you would expect a lot more, and I've, I've really just, you know, all year, I've basically repeated the same thing about them, and as a result, it's like, well, kind of getting a bit tired of this now, that um, they haven't really pulled their act together, and it's not like a team like Renault, you can't just say, oh, there's always next year, there's always, you know, they need, they're expected to be possibly up where Mercedes and Ferrari are, given that they're manufacturer teams, and then you look at how good Red Bull are doing this year with with Honda as well, you know, it's almost, 
as good as they were doing when they left Renault last year, or they, you know, if not, they've just improved a little bit. They're, on the reliability front, I definitely think that they're a lot better than where they, um, where Red Bull were with um, Red uh, Renault last year. So that's that's pretty big, you know. And I guess when we get to the end of the year and we do our little reviews and everything, we'll talk a lot about it in detail um, and what the expectation going into next year will be. So that's pretty much summarizing the race for Renault. Um, but going back to like I guess the race in general, it was a bizarre end because I thought it was you know the right lap at the end, lap fifty three, and everyone thought the same thing as well when the checkered flag came out. But apparently the digital checkered flag was declared early, a lap early. It was triggered. Bit of a bizarre ending there. And what had happened on what we thought was the final lap was that Sergio Perez went off um, and crashed at the S's. And later we found out that he was helped by Pierre Gasly. Um, and then we heard some radio messages um, just after they crossed the finish line to start what was supposedly lap 53, the final lap, um, with Gasly being told that. Um, that the races, that's it, that that's the checkered flag, and to stop pushing or whatever, the, the positions will be counted back to the final lap and everything, or the previous lap, I should say. Um, so even though Perez crashed out, we thought he was done, he was still classified P9 um, because he was in that position, and then Hulk in P, P10, Gasly finishing 8th in the Toro Rosso, so good result for him um, with that Honda Power unit. But yeah, it was just a bizarre, bizarre twist how that all ended up. And initially we thought, yeah, so with Perez out, it'd be Lance Stroll that would go into the points to score for racing point. But, you know, I guess one racing point still got to collect points, even though it wasn't Stroll and it was Perez on that occasion. So that's how things panned out for those guys. But then when you look behind, it was, you know, again, disappointing races for um, Haas and for Alfa Romeo. You know, the run for Kimi Raikkonen has been pretty terrible in the last few races since the mid-season break, or since the Singapore Grand Prix, I should say. Um, and speaking of Kimi Raikkonen, it's his 40th birthday today, so happy birthday to the Iceman. Um, I hope he has plenty of vodka. If not, you know, just enjoys a quiet one. Um, and, you know, 40 years old and still racing Formula 1. Hey, 40's not that old anyway, but I'm sure he's um, going to be enjoying... Hopefully another year next year with Alfa Romeo, um, the way things going. You know, they've had a pretty solid year, but just, you know, the form of late hasn't been as flash, so they're going to have to look to, to change things to, to get back to where they were. Haas, again, qualifying good with Roman Grosjean, but then just in the race they fall away, so, you know, no point harping on about the same thing again with those guys. Williams, difficult weekend, especially for Robert Kubitz's side of the garage, and it's starting to get a bit cagey now between Kubitzer and the team because um, he crashed in qualifying um, on Sunday, and then they did a great job to rebuild the car ahead of the race, and he started from the pit lane, but Kubitzer had a bit to say about, you know, the fact that they took the a new spec wing off the car or whatever and, you know, weren't letting him race with that one or something so kind of like you know if you think back to 2013 when Pastor Maldonado was convinced um, in his final year at Williams when he was convinced that they were sabotaging his car and making it terrible purposely 
um, in comparison to Bottas at the time, who was his teammate at Williams. So, you know, kind of is a bit similar. But, you know, for Kubica, got to feel really sorry for him too that this year hasn't been the fairy tale year that we all expected it to be given that, you know, he made that miraculous recovery from that rallying crash, he was fit enough to drive a Formula One car again, and yeah, you know, just combination of his comeback, you know, and with the form and fortunes of Williams this year, it's just everything that could have gone wrong went wrong (laughs) for him, and you know, I don't mean to laugh about it, it's not funny, but um, it's just one of those unfortunate circumstances where, you know, you, you look at it and it's like, well, when when sometimes when you look at things where everything that could go wrong does go wrong, you kind of just, it's not, you don't laugh, but you laugh in a way that it's like really, you expected these things to happen in the worst case scenario and they just happen. So that's all I can say to summarize Robert Kubitz's season so far. He's scored a point at least you know he's the only point scorer for Williams given that George Russell's been the form driver there he's not had a point yet so Kubitz is scoring that point in Germany I guess you know that's gonna bail him out of trouble a little bit so that was um the Japanese Grand Prix and just before I move away from F1 for the rest of the episode um there was the debate that was thrown up um around the weekend about you know the the weekend format you know given that this was only a two-day event basically because of the typhoon wiping out Saturday they're like well should you know an F1 weekend be condensed into two days so have practice on you know the first day whether it's Saturday and then Sunday you have qualifying in the race on the same day and you know there's a lot of for and against in this in this thing, you know, a four is obviously, you know, it makes it more exciting, makes it more compact and everything. But the against thing, which I kind of agree with, is that from a um, circuit point of view um, and ticket sales and all that sort of thing and attendance, you know, having a two-day event isn't as attractive as having a three-day event where, you know, three days is more like a festival, you know, when you've got people coming in from out of town and spending big money to come to these events, you kind of you know having it just for two days means you know it's a lot more rushed whereas people who come in from out of town they want to be able to spend more time and also enjoying three or you know if you look at the Australian Grand Prix which is my favorite example for how an event should be or how a motorsport event should be run is that you know it's a four-day event Thursday what they've done with Thursday in the last couple of years has been, you know, the benchmark as far as, you know, you've got such a great supporting act, you know, as far as your support races are concerned, support categories, then, you know, the fan engagement with the drivers as well and team principals too. And, you know, even this year, what they did with on the Wednesday with the Federation Square um, launch of the season, you know, as well. So, you know, you have suddenly have five days of where, um, Formula One takes over Melbourne basically so you know I think more is you know we've got to think about quality as opposed to quantity and in this case you know quality comes from you know having more days so that being said I still think you know there could be tweaks made whether it's like shortening your practice sessions and everything or you know they're still harping on about qualifying races and sprint for the grids and that sort of stuff reverse grid nonsense I'm not particularly a fan but you know what like let's just see 
them trial it if they do next year. Let's see if how it goes. If it's popular, I'm sure they'll um, they'll continue with it. They'll tinker with it. If not, then they'll probably throw it in the can. And you know that's the last we'll hear of it unless they want to tinker with it to see um, what else can happen with it. But you know, I still believe that you know the current qualifying format is still fine. It's not needing any adjustments. But if you were to make adjustments, then my top 10 shootout idea still stands. <laughs> you know, I'm still not letting go of that one. All right, well, so now time to get into what I've kind of been waiting for, and that's um, talking about the Bathurst 1000. So another spectacular edition of the great race, um, won by Scott McLaughlin, as we all know. And, you know, when you just look at the stats and the papers and the results and everything, it's just like, well, it looks like he had a perfect weekend because it started off with the record-breaking shootout lap in the top 10 shootout to claim pole position, breaking his own record, mind you, from two years ago in 2017. But I guess, you know, as always, as is Bathurst, the race wasn't without drama, twists, you know, the race being turned upside down and everything. And I guess... It all boiled down to that final lap um, battle with Shane Van Gisbergen when the safety car came in and gave them that final lap um, dash to the the finish line. And, you know, Van Gisbergen with Garth Tander um, classified second in the race. And then James Courtney, Jack Perkins in the 22 Walkinshaw car coming in third basically from nowhere, which was um, great for those guys given that it's their third podium in three years at that track and I guess first for Courtney in a while um, along with Jack Perkins as well I think first time we've seen Jack Perkins on the podium at Bathurst too and given that you had all three team owners there over the weekend as well um, Zach Brown with Michael Andretti and um, uh, Ryan Walkinshaw too it was a pretty important weekend you know and of course that wild card that they had too with the IndyCar guys Alexander Rossi and James Hinchcliffe unfortunately not the greatest race for them and we'll go over what happened to them at the end of the race as well a bit later um, they were the cause for one of the key safety car moments in the race but um, when you're looking at the whole race um, overall you your contenders basically were um, cars 17 yeah uh, when um, McLaughlin and Alex Premer, his teammate. Premer, of course, the first Frenchman now to win the Bathurst 1000. So that'll go down in history as a, as a pretty good start until someone else comes and beats him. But the other cars that were in contention, so you had two of the Tickford cars, the 55 and the 6 car. So the Chas Mostert, James Moffat, super cheap auto f- Ford Mustang, I was about to say Falcon, but no, it's the Mustang, and then of course the number six car of Cameron Waters and uh, Michael Caruso, the Monster Energy Mustang, and then your two Triple Eight cars as well, so car Triple Eight with Jamie Wincup and Craig Lowndes, and then of course the 97 which finished on the podium in second, so they were the key contenders in the race, we lost two of them um, on lap 124 when there was a crash between the two Tickford cars, so Mostert and Waters for the second weekend in a row, actually, when you look back to Pukakoi, they came together. And then we had Mostert try to go around the outside of Waters at the chase, but ends up, you know, kind of turning in on him and tags him. And then they both end up in the um, the gravel trap, the sand trap. So second year running or three years in a row that these guys or these entries have come together because last year, of course, 
when Moster took out the monster car at Forest Elbow, it was actually um, David Russell, the co-driver in the car at the time. So you know, a bit of a bit of grief there, I guess, in that instance. And you know, it, it was such a shame because those two guys they were in contention. I mean, Chaz Moster in the early part of the race and James Moffat in the 55 car, they actually looked like one of the fastest cars out there, um, if not the fastest, um, you know, perhaps, you know, just a bit slower than McLaughlin in the 17 and Prema, but, you know, um, when Prema was in the car doing his co-driver stint, uh, I think Mostert was in the, the 55, so the main driver, and at that time Mostert was definitely the quickest of everyone, so, and, you know, kind of forced Prema into making a mistake as well in the middle part of the race, and they were able to get track position there so a great shame for those guys and you know given the commentary around um Chaz Mostert and his future too at that team it kind of doesn't look really good either and Cameron Waters of course is uh locked in for Tickford for the next few years along with the major sponsor in Monster Energy so that debrief would have been awkward as <laughs> very awkward let's just say um there was an apology made from Mostert, which is pretty good too, but I guess it doesn't really bring back the what happened during the race, you know, given that Bathurst means so much to these guys and for supercars, for any supercars driver, Bathurst 1000 sometimes means more than the championship as well. So I guess, yeah, just a, a missed opportunity, a, a great missed opportunity at that for, um, for the Tickford camp. So... That, that was, I guess, one of the big flashpoints. Now, one of my other talking points from the race was, again, how, you know, it was kind of split into two, basically, the race where, you know, the first 102 laps, we only had the one safety car, and that actually came out on the first, on the first lap. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh again. It's just, yeah. Um, safety car came out on the first lap, and just after the commentators actually said, oh, we've had a clean start here, and then you next thing you notice is Tim Slade's at, in the wall um, just after the cutting so safety car came out on the first lap then to um, round everyone up and clear the damage there was also problems pre-race there was actually problems pre-race for for Brody Kostecki in the um, Kostecki brothers wildcard car so just on the warm-up lap there was some kind of cool suit malfunction which sent um, some fumes through the um, the drink bottle or whatever and um he breathed it in and a bit of a scare i guess you know thinking perhaps he might not be able to to race or whatever and they put um his cousin um kurt kostecki on standby but then Brody was able to do the rest of the race um so that's how that started and they were able to get back into the race and jake kostecki hopped in the car and did a pretty solid job but then you know in that final part of the race um after the 102 laps were contested we had seven safety cars until the 161 lap checkered flag uh todd hazelwood out at reed park crashed then jake Kostecki out on lap 113 crashed as well unfortunately we had then lap 135 which was where we had the controversial moment of the race so first of all safety car was triggered by alexander rossi who ended up at the gravel at the final corner which is easily done and those guys you know did pretty well considering the the lack of preparation um so great class from those guys just you know unfortunately the result 
didn't reflect the effort. And, you know, of course, WAU, Walkinshaw, Andretti United, just not really having the best car at the moment either, even though we saw Courtney and Perkins finish on the podium. So, yeah, as you guys already know, if you've been following it, this is where the controversy came, and that was with the safety car out, there was a flurry of activity going to head into the pit stops. Um, Wincup and McLaughlin at this stage are leading the race with Wincup ahead of McLaughlin. Those guys decide to pit. Behind them is um, Fabian Coulthard, teammate to Scott McLaughlin, of course, at the Shell V Power Racing team. And this is where he started slowing up the pack as those other two cars got into the pits. They're coming down Mountain, um, sorry, Conrad Strait um, behind the safety car. And, or not even behind the safety car, they hadn't even found the safety car yet, but Coulthard is just backing up so much, he's backed off the pace altogether, and he's slowing up the pack, which included, at that point, Shane Van Gisbergen, who strategically was in a good position to benefit, so he wouldn't have had to pit if, you know, he wouldn't have had to pit in that sort of um, situation, whereas Coulthard would have had to come in, and it would have had to be a double-stack scenario at Shell, so... DJR Team Penske, they didn't want that. They thought that was going to hurt their race. So I guess the call was made. You can listen to the radio messages on YouTube or wherever you can find them on highlights and all that. But basically, they gave the instruction to Fabian to slow down under safety reasons that, you know, there's debris on the track. You don't know where where it is, but just slow down. But he, you know, backing off and everything, slowing down the pack, it just, it looked so obvious what happened, you know, and they just basically wanted to do that so they could get McLaughlin into the pits, um, get his tyres or fuel done and everything, and he was pretty much untouched as far as in his battle for the lead with Win Cup. If, for example, Van B- Van Gisbergen came in to the pits, he could have been a threat to McLaughlin's race or the way that Shell had to double stack. That could have potentially cost them the win, you know, and it was probably under that sort of situation where it was like, all right, well, you know, let's try this little tactic, which, you know, I guess morally and ethically and everything, it sort of goes against fair sportsmanship and everything, and that's where that whole controversy has um, come about is that, you know, that's blatantly cheating, that's the C word's been used um, quite loosely and quite vigorously as well in this situation, Um, ultimately it wasn't the reason for Wincup not winning the race because he went on a diverging strategy to McLaughlin at the end of the race because Wincup pitted on the lap 151 safety car which came out because we had Richie Stanaway and Andre Heimgartner crash out together um, but Scott, at that point, had fuel saved quite a bit, so, you know, Wind Cub was going hell for leather, and, you know, if he had to make another pit stop, if another safety car came out, he would, but because McLaughlin had saved enough fuel, and also helped by those constant safety car periods, he was able to inherit the lead of the race, and as a result of not having been compromised by double stacking in that previous safety car which was the the controversial one on lap 135 he was able to assume the lead of the race after Wind Cup pitted on 151 and then also was helped by the fact that that safety car stayed out quite for quite some time um, because or there was yeah there was another safety car that came out after that I think as well which um, you know at just on 
the Exeter Forest Elbow. I forgot who it was for, but at Forest Elbow, there was another safety car that came out, and that was the one that basically got them to the last lap where they did their last lap dash. And, you know, by that point, Scott was fine as far as fuel was concerned. He had enough fuel to do it. Van Gisbergen, better tyres, better fuel, almost pulled off what Mostert did in 2014, but unfortunately didn't come to avail and, like, second time in like three four years or whatever that we've seen van, van gisbergen finish like 0.6 of a second off um well actually no 2016 he was like a tenth behind will davison and jonathan webb so you know runner up again for van gisbergen um 17 whether it was the best car or not there's people saying that they should be disqualified altogether from the race you know where do we sit on this? Where do you guys sit on it as well? Where do I sit on it? Well, I guess if we're going to use the Singapore Grand Prix from 2008 as an example of what they should do here with, you know, obviously Singapore 2008 was Crashgate with um, Fernando Alonso winning that race for Renault after his teammate Nelson Piquet Jr. crashed on purpose to get a safety car out there and to help them kind of similar in this instance you know you could say comparatively but they didn't strip Alonso of the win back in 2008 but you know what had happened is that um altogether there was so many penalties dished out you know the people involved were banned and you know Priatori I guess banned from Formula One management for forever like he can't do any work within Formula One um uh, in any sort of official capacity apart from what he is now as like a driver manager or whatever so what do they do i guess what do supercars do what do what can the fia do they can intervene too if this is taken further and you know so djr team penske facing a hearing ahead of gold coast 600 next week over this debacle I guess the consensus has been, you know, in a measured way, not, you know, talking on emotional or whatever, where some people are getting a bit emotional and saying, well, they should be disqualified from the race altogether, or even Scott should be given a penalty, a time penalty. Um, I was talking to someone today who said Scott should be just given a 10-second time penalty or a 5-second time penalty, which would mean he wouldn't win the race, you know, he'd be classified you know, third or something as a result. So I think in a measured way, the ideal penalty seems to be that you'd look at some kind of points being stripped, whether it's for the whole season, just wiping out their team's championship points, which, let's be fair, is a pretty huge penalty, you know, even though that the win would still stand, the team's championship is quite crucial. And I was um, in the commentary over the weekend with uh, on the website and few people writing in which is really good and really I really enjoyed engaging with them um you know what one person asked oh you know what why did triple eight always have the um the garage at the end of the pits and the answer to that was well the garage positions are determined um, by where you finish in the team's championship each year and triple eight won it last year the red bull racing team holding red bull holding racing team i should say and as a result, they get the pit priority, so they get their garage at the end. So if DGR Team Penske were to get their point strip this year, for the whole year in the team's championship, that would mean they'd be at the back end of the pit lane, which is not ideal, because being at the other end, at the pointy end of the grid, 
pointing into the pit lane means your pit exit time is a lot lower, lesser, sorry, I should say, than, you know, um, where it would be on the other end, where, you know, you do your pit stop, but then you've got the whole pit lane to basically uh, trundle through, which, you know, you see those guys at the, the back markers and everything lose out whenever they do pit stops and if they're in a good position in the race. So that would be quite huge. And, you know, we talk about fines and everything, and for an organization like DGR with Team Penske on board, a fine wouldn't really, really it'd be like a slap on the wrist, so really, it's just the team's points that, I guess, should be stripped in this instance, it is sad, though, like, I, I don't know whether to feel angry about it, or more so disappointed, where it kind of just has put this really unnecessary, um, ink blot on the race, you know, like, it's been a pretty bad year, I guess, as far as controversy and whatnot for supercars given that you know we've had all these um parity adjustment thingos going on and it's sort of been a year where you question everything um and then this just comes and kind of puts a sour taste in your mouth and i i totally think that mclaughlin is deserving of his win he was the fastest on the weekend he broke the record for pole position again, he, you know, was just on the ball, and it was a deserved victory as far as, you know, his own form is concerned, and of course, his help that he got from Alex Prema, his co-driver, but the team doing something like that is just, yeah, like, you know, when, when people start comparing it to what else, you know, other big cheating scenarios in world sport, you know, for us here in Australia, Sandpaper Gate is still very much fresh in our minds so you know the for, for people to compare that to sandpaper gate as well as like well i thought you know motorsport supercars was something that you know was void of this sort of stuff but apparently not you know people will do anything to make gains and you know take advantages and that sort of thing so i just yeah just kind of just left a sour taste in my mouth you know after what was a great weekend, great weekend of racing, great weekend of Bathurst again, but then, you know, to finish on this kind of note, it's just like, well, you know, hopefully, at the end of the day, I hope people can look back and also look at Scott's individual effort and Premier's individual effort as well, given that the year that they've had and McLaughlin possibly going to win that second championship in a row, but yeah, more people, I reckon, you know, obviously going for the negative side of the the thing and looking at what happened at Bathurst and be like, well, you know, that was like race fixing there, basically. But anyway, just quickly av- away from the disappointment and everything, um, just acknowledging the achievement as far as winning the Bathurst 1000 this year for the team is concerned and for in particular Penske, the Penske organization, they've had such a successful year in whatever they've done, so Indy 500 win with Simon Paginel, they've had the IndyCar title won by Joseph Newgarden not too long ago, Um, they won a big NASCAR event as well earlier in the week, Talladega with uh, Joey Logano, I think it was, or I don't know much about NASCAR, or maybe it was Ryan Blaney, I've got no clue about NASCAR, you're going to have to correct me on that, guys, sorry. And then on the same day as Bathurst, the um, IMSA title was wrapped up too by um, the Acura Team Penske with um, Juan Pablo Montoya and 
Dane Cameron. So you know the fa- but the fact that Roger Penske himself was at Bathurst over the weekend and not there at IMSA was shows you that you know his priority was Bathurst and how much he values Bathurst too. So for him, a big achievement this year, along with all the other achievements he's had, and then for Dick Johnson, his first Bathurst win, I guess you know with his name for 25 years. You know it was 1994 when. It was actually him driving with um, John Bow that they won Bathurst together. So 25 years later, they've achieved that. But at the same time, you know, you look at that, but then you've got that other thought in your mind about what what happened. You know, what transpired as far as the um, the team orders were concerned. And I got to feel you got to feel sorry too for Fabian Coulthard in this instance because he was only following orders. You know, and people who were making the comparisons between him and Nelson Piquet Jr., I think, you know, Piquet was a little bit different, you know, it just, you know, I think Coulthard is a very popular character and, you know, I don't think he his reputation will take as much damage as it did for Piquet back in the day, you know, Piquet was an up-and-coming driver and, you know, with a chance to prove himself and, um, you know, he went and did this thing, you know, when was a part of that sort of thing. So, whereas, you know, Coulthard, he's an established identity, established um, entity in the team and also in the championship. So, don't think that there would be as much fallout, I guess, in as far as internally is concerned. But then, you know, fans, you know, will still be divided. But um, I just got to say, yeah take it easy with Fabs because, you know, it wasn't his fault exactly, um, you know, it wasn't his fault that this was what transpired, if anything, just where the team, where the team's priorities lay and how they let this transpire, that's probably the biggest thing that you've got to question, so, you know, from that perspective, I really don't know if I can add much more in regards to this because it's when you think about it, it just, yeah, as I said, just puts a big stain on the whole weekend, it puts a stain on the event for this year too, Bathurst, it's that one race you look forward to all year, or one of the races you look forward to all year, and it just kind of, kind of disappoints you in that way, because of uh, politicking and internal and nonsense, and I thought it would be the parody stuff that would ruin the race, but there you go, something else beat me to it. Alright, it's I guess time to wind things down as well for this week and I'm um, just going to finish it off while still on supercars and talking about some of the silly season movements and you know while Bathurst is usually one of those standalone weekends where you don't really get much of that sort of stuff happening, there was quite a bit of movement confirmed so ahead of the weekend they came out and said that um, this new team Sydney will come into the championship next year of course led by James Courtney and as I said last week Rod Salmon the um Rod Salmon the GT team owner previously in the Australian GT championship he'll be heading it up and also the relocation of Techno's racing entitlements contract as well so Techno their one car program is shifting from Queensland to New South Wales to be a part of this Team Sydney and of course Team Sydney is not going to be the name of the team it's just you know kind of like a work in progress going on there but you know James Courtney is um, confirmed as one of the drivers Boost Mobile I guess um, rumoured to be one of the sponsors going over there 
Um, and there's been quite a bit of controversy around Boost Mobile at the moment because, you know, they're currently contracted to GRM as their title sponsor for next year of, as well as this year. But, you know, over performance of performance clause or something, Boost might pull the plug on GRM, which might leave GRM in the lurch because they don't have the money to continue in supercars unless... Of course, they get what they are asking um, supercars about, and that's a control upright, um, in the, which is a component in the car that they want standardized and to be able to pick off a rack for everyone to use or whatever. Um, but supercars are saying, yeah, that's not happening till 2022. Boost say, well, we'll fund it for you if you want. Um, and supercars just continue saying no so this might mean that grm might have to pull out of supercars at the end of the year which would be really sad given that gary rogers has been full-time in supercars since 1996 boost i guess goes over to team sydney james courtney's there um richie stanaway i guess is like heavily associated with boost mobile and the boss as well for that um, company so you'd think that he would be a guy who goes over there and then you look at the other pieces to to fall into place so Jack LeBrock of course then you know splits with Techno he ends up at Tickford it's being said in the um, the 55 car while Chas Mostert's off to Walkinshaw and Dreddy United Richie Stanaway of course over to Team Sydney and then I've got a question mark about around Erebus now while their driver combination is confirmed there's been some talk about a change in the regulations possibly for next year where um, teams are allowed to bring in multi-driver wrecks so wrecks of course you're racing entitlements contracts and we'll take Erebus as an example so they have a third car for the the season a third wreck and that third car is split between two drivers, which at the moment is not allowed under the current rules. But what they want to do to promote young drivers is to, to be able to have that car all season and let them race in the championship, but maybe share the car with um, a different driver. So like, say, for example, in the case of Erebus, they want to put Will Brown in the car, let's say, um, who's Anton Di Pasquale's um co-driver in the enduro cup so you have will brown in the car but then you also want to give brock feeney a couple of races as well in a year so let's say brown does your uh events at adelaide melbourne grand prix tassie and then you jump uh you jump in or you put feeney into the car and he does the next couple of events so philip island and um, winton and all that um I'm just going off this year's calendar, so I know one of those events, Phillip Island, is not on next year's calendar, so don't beat me up over that. So that's kind of the thing about that, and we won't know more until, I guess, I think tomorrow is the deadline for 2020 Rex being confirmed, contracts and all, so more will come out of that tomorrow, you'd think, on the 18th, but that's that. And there have it's like there's quite a few wrecks that have been handed back at the you know at present you know and one of the two of those are coming from Kelly Racing so they're scaling back to two cars um, they've got four cars at the moment the Nissan Altimas but they're doing a manufacturer switch over to Ford and they'll have two Mustangs that they're going to run and you know they're going to have support from Ford too. Also, they're going to be building their own in-house engine as well. So that's going to be interesting to see how they go as a Ford team. 
but driver wise what's going to be their combinations because you've got four drivers there at the moment you'd expect that Rick Kelly is a shoe in for one of the seats there who feels that other seats you know who feels that other seat because Andre Heimgartner has been solid all season Gary Jacobson's done an okay job you'd think um and then you've got Simona Di Silvestro as well who as we know she's got the gig over with Porsche and Formula E as their test and reserve driver but she could still stay on in supercars and you know to be part of Kelly Racing with a Ford Mustang which is you know the best car at the moment and also with a Harvey Norman sponsorship too it would be pretty logical but then you know you've got Heimgartner who's been pretty solid too do you get rid of him but then again you've got new wrecks popping up all over the grid so there could be opportunity elsewhere Matt Stone Racing looking to put on a second car Irwin Racing as well Team 18 the the (laughs) Charlie, the Charlie Schwerkold, um, the Charlie Schwerkold team looking for two cars as well. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. I don't think any of these drivers will drop off the grid per se, but you've got a lot of guys knocking on the door still too. And, you know, Michael Caruso would be a good example of that um, currently on the sidelines and racing in the Enduro Cup with um, Cameron Waters. So, yeah, we won't know more until we have all those wrecks confirmed and then we'll be able to start saying, oh, you know, this driver will pop up here, that driver will pop up there. You know, there's been some chatter about Tim Slade and possibly not being with BJR next year, Brad Jones Racing, and he's possibly might be the guy to go into that um, MSR um, second wreck that Matt Stone Racing, so that would be something as well. So, yeah, you know, quite a bit to digest there, of course, but um, I think that's that's about it, you know, and we'll talk more about it next week, get on to seeing what the, the rec movement's like, team driver movements, Mexican Grand Prix as well, going to be a big one next weekend, Gold Coast 600 next weekend, Australian Grand Prix, Phillip Island next weekend too, it's all happening. It's all happening. It's very exciting. But um, yeah, just want to thank you guys again for tuning in this week. Um, thank you for the patience as well. Going to try and see if I can get this Facebook stuff sorted. If not, I'll keep you guys posted. But please, if you are following, if you're listening, um, you can follow us on Twitter. Um, if you've got a Twitter account, um, just the handle is um, at hit the apex media and it's always in the the show notes as well so whichever podcast platform you do listen to it on you can um, launch it through there but other than that i think yeah i, I really enjoyed getting that one off the chest um, talking about bathurst as well the disappointment of it the ecstasy as well as the agony you know and it's kind of i guess the balance yeah kind of the balance of things at the moment so yeah anyway guys thank you for tuning in and i'll see you guys next time